Hi, welcome to Research in Focus, a podcast exploring the work of Latrobe researchers. I'm Lauren Gorn. Whether it's Aussie rules, soccer, rugby league or union, Australians love their football. Each of these codes has its own loyal fans and traditions and different representations in the media. Natasha Buffen is a senior lecturer in the Department of Media and Communication at La Trobe University, whose research focuses on sports journalism in Australia. Natasha, welcome to Research in Focus. G'day, Lauren. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Back in 2012, the AFL launched a brand new team in the Greater Western Sydney area, the Sydney Greater Western Sydney Giants. That was one of the new wave of professional teams. Um, And this represented a major push for that league into an area not known for its AFL fans. Uh, You did some work investigating the feelings of people in the Greater Western area about this team, uh, an area mostly known for its uh, very impassioned rugby fans and an area that also has a large Muslim population. So what was the reaction to the AFL's attempt to launch this new team? Um, One of the uh, people I interviewed for both the Radio National documentary and also for a paper I wrote um, in the Journal of Islam and uh, Christian uh, Relations, one of the people I interviewed for for this actually said that they felt the Sydney population of, um, the Western Sydney population of Muslims had a very, um, had a very... I'm trying to think of what what the right word is, very flirtatious sort of approach to different sports. Um, So they always went back to their tried and true rugby league. Um, But they were certainly open to flirting, if you you could um, describe it that way, with other sports. Um, So it's a growth corridor. It's a very, very important area in terms of the economy of of the state of New South Wales. So the AFL wanted to to sort of get in on that. And so I noticed back at the time all of the marketing was very, very culturally specific. So the new website would feature women in headscarves. They would hold community events and the community events would have halal meat. Uh, They were definitely trying to reach out to this particular demographic. So the AFL were very aware of what they were doing in yeah, moving completely. into Western Sydney. And um, a couple of years later, the A-League did exactly the same thing and they've both managed to uh, gain a significant uh, section of support from Greater Western Sydney. Um, in the A-League's case, it was with the Western Sydney Wanderers. So uh, the, the fan base for these particular teams is very... I mean, firstly, rugby league, I guess, is a very working-class sport. Um, right. And, you know, it's it's Greater Western Sydney is perceived to be a uh, still one of those working class sort of strongholds. Um, and the fan base uh, certainly follows a, a particular, um, I guess, a particular demographic. But as to whether or not, um, you know, when the Sydney Swans sort of set up shop there, a lot of people turned to AFL. But then after the Sydney Swans stopped sort of succeeding, um, <laughs> it was like, yes, we'll, we'll go back to our trusty old NRL. But what's really funny is that I think the the religiously or, or culturally motivated marketing in, in this instance has worked. Certainly, the um, uh, the Greater Western Sydney uh, Giants and Western Sydney Wanderers have both uh, continued to sort of have that fan base so far, even perhaps without success. Which without is success, what they relied yeah. On for the Sydney Swans, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. You're an AFL multicultural ambassador. How proactively is the AFL trying to reach? Um, different communities that might not have engaged with the sport 
um, beyond kind of the Western Sydney context? Uh, I did work over at um, at Monash with Electra, who was one of the very first uh, sort of female sports um, journalists in in Australia, and she's noticed that uh, everything has um, has changed. And I we would both agree that it's it it's a utilitarian sort of move, and right. it, it's in order to stay relevant, the the sport has to move away from this history that it's had of being incredibly masculine, incredibly white. Um, and that's that's for better or worse. That's the history that's associated with footy. Um, there are some absolutely incredible stories that are not really sort of well known in research or in the media. Uh, for instance, back in the twenties and thirties, we had Chinese Australians playing for North Melbourne. You know, for the for the North Melbourne Football Club. We don't hear of these stories. No, you know? we definitely don't. So. Um, the overwhelming, uh, the dominant narrative about footy has been that it's a predominantly white male sport. And so in order to stay relevant, um, the AFL has, uh, to its credit, you know, it, it's done um, things to sort of dismantle the slightly misogynistic and more problematic, um, you know, very, very homogenous uh, type of reputation that it has. It's tried to increase with some success. It could, you know, it, um, it could, could could do a lot more in terms of the multicultural players. So it selects different player ambassadors and each of the player ambassadors um, does a lot of outreach in terms of multicultural communities. Um, one year I worked with uh, Lin Jong, who plays for the Western Bulldogs, mm-hmm. and he uh, set up specific clinics trying to reach out to Melbourne's Asian communities, trying to get them sort of interested in footy. So every AFL player ambassador has to do at least one of those as part of their contract. Okay. Um, and from the community, uh, people are then picked to become AFL multicultural community ambassadors. So that's what I um, sort of did. And with North Melbourne, uh, with Essendon and with uh, the Bulldogs, I worked on programs that tried to bring footy out to underrepresented populations. So things like um, international students, we'd, we'd bring them along to games, introduce them to, to the sport. Um, and I think it's just a, a relevance thing. The with, with a couple of the other codes, predominantly soccer. Yeah. Soccer is seen as the um, as the wog sport, as the migrant sport. You've done some work on how yeah. soccer is perceived in the public, but more importantly, how the the media represent it. Yeah. And why is it, you know, the stereotype of soccer being the kind of international or, as you say, wog sport. How? Why mm. is it important to look at how the media talk about this specifically? That's a really, really good question. Um, it's because a lot of my, my research focuses not just on uh, sports journalism but also on the media in general. And I, I find a lot of the time the media is the arbiter, whether we like it or not, of what is acceptable, what is mainstream, what is Australian. Um, and when things deviate from that, um, it can come across as a little bit of a shock. So if you go along to... Uh, a suburban soccer pitch on the weekend. Mm-hmm. You'll find people of various nationalities playing. You know, the, the team that I played for uh, in the Victorian Women's State Leagues uh, 2, 3 and 4, we were a specifically women's team and we were based in Western Footscray and we looked like the United Nations <laughs> because that's just the sort of women who, who are sort of interested in, in, um, in soccer. Um, so I guess, you know, when that comes along, the mainstream media certainly has had a problematic relationship with soccer because the, um, diversity is the default right. for that sport. And so because diversity is the default for that sport, the narrative around soccer is is that it's um, it's the migrant sport. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of Johnny Warren, the former um, state uh, player for Sydney. He was quite a, quite a um, prominent player there. Before he died, he wrote a book and he called it um, uh, Wogs, Sheilas and Poofters. 
So that was the title right. of, of the book. It was about soccer, but it, but it alluded to the fact that it was seen in, the, in these very pejorative terms. You know, yeah. um, if you played that sport, you were either gay, you were, um, you know, you were a woman, Sheila's, yeah. um, and you were, you know, I guess wog is now a contested term in, uh, term in, in, in terms of how, how pejorative it is, but it was certainly, a, you know, a denigratory term when, when Warren was playing. Um, and so that narrative then pits the people who follow this sport as being outside of the mainstream. Um, which is why we see a lot of the time um, when we do see somebody who does play footy, who, who does come from a culturally and linguistically diverse background, they're pushed forward as, um, I guess, almost a, a measure of the yardstick of integration. And that's aside from the fact that that person might actually be a really, really good player. I'm thinking in particular of Bashar Huli from the Muslim community, mm-hmm. uh, Richmond Premiership player, um, Ahmed Saad, uh, Nick Natanui from West Coast Eagles, you know, anyone who's sort of seen as um, is coming from a minority background, despite the fact they might actually be really good players, but they're often in the narrative, they're seen as a, a, a measure of how successfully they've integrated into Australian society. In some ways, the AFL sometimes gets a bit caught up in foregrounding diversity, whereas for soccer, it's the default and still given a kind of pejorative run by the media in in some sections of the media um and that that was the focus of one of the papers i did for the australia uh, the asia pacific uh, media educator about what happened when melbourne city uh which is based here at latrobe actually um when they were bought by a city football group who own manchester united no Manchester City. I'm um, mm-hmm. going to get a lot of very angry uh, Manchester United fans <laughs> there. Um, who, when they, are, you know, that particular group owns uh, Manchester City and New York City, right? And so they they purchased what was then known as Melbourne Heart. Um, and because it was a rich oil sheikh who is the deputy uh, prime minister of the United Arab Emirates, the Herald Sun certainly uh, took it as an opportunity to uh, to stick the boot in in both uh, migrants and and soccer. So two of its favourite uh, right. weeping boys, um, and had yeah. I, and I, I researched that, and I, I spoke about uh, a little bit about how that was covered in the Herald Sun, as opposed to other uh, sections of the media. I mean, the Age at the same time saw it as something that was really positive. You know, it had a picture of very happy uh, little kids in what were then Melbourne Heart, you know, mm-hmm. kit. It had um, a, a player who was uh, quite uh, famous as a soccerer and quite popular at the time with a high-profile Harry Kewell. Um, it had him on the front page um, as a potential signing for, for Melbourne City. Um, and it depicted them as a fab- part of the fabric of Melbourne life, so Australian in a way, right. whereas the cartoon in the Herald Sun depicted uh, women in burkas uh, acting as cheerleaders, you know, saying that uh, Melbourne Heart was taken over by a city football group with no noticeable changes. <laughs> so, so in many ways, sport, we allow that to be our proxy for how we feel about kind of culture and religion and, and the state of multicultural society in Australia yeah, today. Absolutely. When you see uh, a, the case of uh, somebody like Adam Goods being on the front page, you know, of uh, that that goes beyond. We, we know in journalism we teach our students if um, – if something's on the front page, then obviously it's it ticks a lot of the boxes in terms of how newsworthy it is. Mm-hmm. But if it's a wraparound, which means that there are no other stories on the front page other than that, then that's a huge story. So in terms of wraparounds, you know, um, only stories of the scale of uh, our first female prime minister being sworn in by our first female jo- governor general. That's the sort of... Um, bigness that's a terrible word isn't it that's that's the scale um the scale of um you know how big a story has to be uh to to be given a wraparound on the front page no other story 
um, other than that. And Adam Goods had a wraparound and Fairfax Papers uh, put his face up prominently and said uh, the booing against him is, is, is racist and it's got to stop. So that's clearly beyond... Um, you know, beyond the, the the confines of what is sports and what is sports journalism, that is a national issue. Yeah. And um, people who say sports should not be political, Colin Kaepernick of the San Francisco 49ers should not be using uh, American NFL as a stage to protest against the mistreatment of Black Americans. Sports should not be political. Sports should not be should not have these sorts of discussions. Sports inherently political, and it's inherently um, you know. Uh, I guess, an extension of the debates that we have. And that is particularly so, I would argue, even more so in Australia than it is in in the United States. As well as working on how sports journalism is discussed in the media and how sport is discussed in journalism, you also work as a journalist and you train journalism students. How does your role as an academic and a journalist inform each other? I guess I'm lucky in the sense that I work in a discipline academically that tries to stay relevant and, in fact, is forced to stay relevant. It just wouldn't exist if it, right. if it didn't. Yeah. So within journalism, we're always looking at um, developments in industry. We know that our industry sort of pays attention to what we do and uh, we, in, in turn, take advice from industry on the directions that we need to take our, our course. Having said that, I mean, academia is a very, very... It's a very strange beast coming from a journalism background. Right. Um, you know, I've had uh, papers rejected because they were one or 2,000 words short of the limit for that particular journal article. And from a journalist's perspective, it's like, but wouldn't you just rather say what you need to say in as few a number of words <laughs> as, as possible? Um, it's, it's a very different sort of frame of mind when I sit down and put together um, a podcast or a television story or a feature story the, the format of the writing, the structure, it's completely different. And I'm trying to sort of minimise it uh, as much as possible, whereas I find in academia you have to tease it out, you have to draw it out. And that has its strengths. It's not necessarily bad, it's just it's different. Yeah. Um, because a lot of the issues that I talk about in my research, I simply couldn't in a journalism context. There's just not... I mean, at the ABC and SBS, our stories for, for hard news... Our, our current affairs stories were like three, four minutes. Right. And our hard news stories were often like 40 words or less. And you simply cannot tease out some of these issues within such a tight constraint. So it's good that um, academia exists and it's good that the, the discipline of journalism exists and the discipline of media and communications exists. So some of these issues can be teased out in and can be interrogated, I guess. Some of these ideas can be looked at in um, in those other formats because the media, um, the commentary format, the hard news format just won't allow for it. Yep. You, um, you mentioned earlier that sport in Australia is often seen as the domain or, or many of the football codes are seen as the domain of kind of white men and uh, you've decided to be a, a sports journalist or a journalist around the area of sport as a as a Muslim woman. How do you feel that your role as an academic informs that kind of journalism that you do? I think that being an academic, you're always uh, going back to empirical evidence. Right. And that is incredibly helpful when I'm working in the community, for instance. If I go back to my community and run workshops about how women should be allowed to play sport and girls should be allowed to play sport, mm -hmm. there are schools, which you know I won't mention, in the, in the Islamic community where when it's time for phys ed, the girls will be told to you know go and take up knitting or, or, or kitchen classes. And women, I mean, female teachers from those schools have rung me up in despair saying, you know, how can we get 
them to understand that the girls need physical education. It is so incredibly helpful working as an academic or a researcher in that field because we can then say to the management of the school, here's the research. Here's the research that shows that if girls play competitive sport, they're more likely to go to university. Here right. it is hard facts, figures. You know, yeah. if um, you know that in terms of their physical health, in terms of their mental health, in terms of their social well-being, here are all of the the stats that show this. Because study after study after study shows that if girls do you know keep up their their physical um, health, uh, there's a multitude of benefits. So that sort of informs, I guess, some of the things that um, that I do within the community. Um, the research helps us in doing things like at my soccer club, we get grants, and the grants help us to lower the cost of registration, for instance, for newly arrived migrants mm-hmm. who want to play. You know, they'll come along to our cultural and linguistically diverse open days and they'll come along in sandals or they'll be borrowing their brother's football boots. Right. And, you know, it just, it makes us, it, it drives some of us to tears because it's just, it's so emotional. They, they want to play, but they don't have the, the, the facility to, to be able to do so. But we're able to take all of this research, put it in the application to the local council and say, um, can we have this grant? It'll reduce the, um, you know, the registration fees for, for these girls. Um, we do things like boot drives, you know, we will donate our, our shoes, our, our equipment. Um, soccer is a strange one in that, in that regard because, you know, the history of it is that it was the working man's sport. Um, but in Australia, it's actually really, really expensive right, to play. It's a middle-class sport. Yeah. Um, and even then, you're seeing layer upon layer of that sort of multicultural narrative. If you go along to um, a high-ranking league game, so NPL, which is just below the A-League, if you go along to uh, NPL matches, you'll see lots and lots of players of European backgrounds because they're from a more established migrant tradition. And you'll see very few, for instance, um, Somali boys. Right. Um, you'll see very few um, boys from, from sort of newer communities, from Burmese communities, that, that type of thing. So even a game that we perceive as being very multicultural and, and diverse still has these it barriers has those to barriers. entry. So those, those, uh, the barriers to entry now, I guess, would be, in, um, would be economic uh, primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a friend over at Vic Yu who's a sports historian and his son plays at a really high level. He's a, he's a goalkeeper for an NPL team. Um, and I think his registration is somewhere in the vicinity of about 1200 1500 a year. Gosh. <laughs> and um, he'll often sit there and say, you know, I re- he's, he's trying out this year. I really hope he doesn't make it. <laughs> so he doesn't right. have to fork out. But okay. his son's very talented, so of course he makes it. Yeah. And it's so, a big commitment. Yeah, it's a huge commitment. And he contrasts it with, with cricket, which is what his son plays in the summer. And the cricket registration is like 150 bucks. Right. So we're talking absolutely insane figures. And you you think, okay, for a middle class academic, you know, 1500 might not be a lot. But if you add it up, if you have three kids who want to play, you know, um, this this all sort of um, adds up. And so uh, I think the barriers now are moving more towards for certainly for a sport like soccer. It's um, it's moving more towards um, financial barriers. And that's where somebody like the AFL comes in. Um, And if they were really, really clever about their marketing and they have been. Uh, they can approach some of these communities and say, you want to play, but the Football Federation of Victoria makes it really expensive for you if you want to play in one of their you know, established sort of um, uh, mainstream sort of clubs. Yeah. Um, you know, come along, try footy, right? We, you don't have to pay anything for Auskick, you know, um, and you're good at running. We can find a spot for you on the team. You know, there's, it's, they have sort of been doing that to, to, some, to some measure of success. Right. That was such a cute story about that that I might just leave it there if that's okay. 
Research in Focus is a La Trobe University podcast produced by Laurie Zion and Lauren Gorn. Support for this podcast comes from La Trobe University's Transforming Human Societies Research Focus Area. This podcast is edited by Max Robbins and Margaret Purdom and hosted by Upstart. Our music is Bright Future by Silent Partner. Thank you.